What is up, my dudes? Welcome to Olympia Oddities. I'm Trista. And I'm Steven. And today, we're covering a UFO story for the first time in a long time. I actually think it's the first one that Steven and I are doing together. Hey. It's our first chance to talk shop about UFOs. And I still haven't bought a theremin. Damn it. I should have bought one specifically for this occasion. What the hell is wrong with me? Today, we're covering the McMinnville UFO photographs, which are two photos showing a supposed UFO taken by a farming couple in a small town near McMinnville, Oregon. These photos are also sometimes called the Trent photos after the couple's last name. Though taken in 1950, the photos continue to be a hot topic of debate in the UFO community, with some saying that there's no possible way that the photos were faked, and skeptics that have to admit that if these photos are a hoax, they are possibly one of the best UFO hoax photos ever created. We'll cover the sighting, how the photos ended up getting to the media, and discuss several examinations and investigations that have been done on the photos. I want to have UFO photos named after us. I mean, that's a life goal. That sounds amazing. You ready to get into it? Yeah. Let's do it. According to an astronomer named William K. Hartman's description of the events, the McMinnville UFO photos were captured around 7.30 p.m. on May 11, 1950, Evelyn and Paul Trent had a farmhouse just outside of Sheridan, Oregon, and Evelyn had been heading out of the house that evening to go feed some of her rabbits that she kept. Cute. Before she reached the house, she happened to look up in the sky and noticed a slow-moving metal disc-shaped object, and it was headed right in her direction. She called for her husband, Paul, who was still inside the house. As he came outside, he claimed that he saw the object, too. They watched the bizarre objects fly in the sky for a few minutes, then Paul went back inside the house to get their camera. He managed to take two photos of the objects before they finally sped through the sky, heading west. However, a few days earlier, on June 8, 1950, the Trents had given their story slightly differently to their local newspaper, the Telephone Register. In this version, Evelyn said that, We'd been out in the backyard. Both of us saw the object at the same time. The camera. Paul thought it was in the car, but I was sure it was in the house. I was right, and the Kodak was loaded with film. Because the roll of film had not been entirely used up, the Trents hadn't gone to get the film developed until after they had used the camera to take a few more photos on May 14, 1950. Evelyn and Paul were interviewed about their UFO counter in 1997 and claimed that they were they originally thought that they might have taken a picture of secret military aircraft, and they were worried that being in possession of these photos might cause them to be in trouble. <laughs> kind of fun. Right? <laughs> like, taking a picture and being like, look at that UFO, and then the slow realization of like, oh. Oh, man, that's the Blackbird. Wait, I don't think we're supposed to be seeing this right now. <laughs> right. They did end up telling a few friends about what they had seen, though. Me, energy. Just, oh, I'm worried <laughs> that the government's going to find out I have this picture. I'm going to go tell all my friends. Dude, I found this thing I think they're working on called the Stealth Bomber. You need to see this thing. It's fucking rad. Uh, Paul ended up t mentioning them to his friend and banker, Frank Wartman. Frank Wartman had been so impressed with these pictures that he'd hung them up in his bank window. <laughs> That's even cooler, dude. Hell yeah. A newspaper reporter, Bill Powell, saw the photos and spoke with Mr. Trent in an attempt to get him to lend the photos to him. His attempt was successful, and he did his own examination of the negatives. He found no evidence that the negatives had been fake or tampered with. Sorry, I'm still stuck on this dude taking these photos and putting them up on his bank wall. That's just, dude, that's like damn near some like Vince McMahon energy. I know that he's under some fire right now, but 
I still think it's cool as hell that the dude it's also stupid rich people energy, but I still think it's cool as hell that the dude has a T-Rex skull in his office. That's I want one. I just love that the banker was like, the people need to see this. People and how am I going to do that? By posting them on my bank window. That's a, that's like some Ohio shit. I love that. These photos ran alongside the first newspaper article about the incident in the telephone register. The story made the front page and its headline read, At long last, authentic photographs of flying saucer? Question mark in parentheses. <laughs> the story and photos were then picked up by the International News Service, or INS, and distributed to other newspapers around the country. Soon the entire U.S. knew about the strange metal ships that had flown over Oregon, and the photos even made it into Life magazine. That's an accomplishment, dude. Even if it, like, I mean, up to this point, we know that there's no doctoring. Or from what experts have seen, that there's no doctoring. That's a, that's an accomplishment, dude. And I want to say that that was, like, probably the biggest magazine at the time. I think I've seen that cover. That's, like, that's the UFO equivalent of the cover of the Rolling Stone. <laughs> Hell yeah, it is. <laughs> Sadly, the Trents had been promised the, that the negatives would be returned safely to them, but they weren't. Life magazine had told them that they'd been misplaced. Luckily, they were rediscovered in 1967 in the files of United Press International, which had merged with INS years earlier. The negatives were then loaned out to the astronomer we mentioned before, Dr. William K. Hartman. Hartman was an astronomer working as an investigator for a government-funded UFO research project called the Condon Committee. The Condon Committee was based out of the University of Colorado. Sadly, the Trents had never been notified that the lost negatives had resurfaced. That's cold-blooded. Yeah, they just keep getting passed around to all these different like people who want to examine them, but it's like, they don't belong to you guys. They belong to the Trents who took them. That's seriously shitty. I would be really mad. Like, yeah, if we just had a picture of Patty. Shout out Sasquatch. If we just had a picture of Patty. And we had negatives of it. Like, for whatever reason, yeah, in 2022, we're just shooting on film. Yeah, I just did not get those negatives back for whatever reason. Yeah, no, I would I would be mad. You I would be starting a fire, dude. I was just about to say you would burn the place down. I would burn the place down. <laughs> Hartman conducted interviews with Paul and Evelyn Trent, and he was impressed by how sincere that they seemed. He couldn't find any evidence that the Trents ever asked for any money for their photos or story, and they really hadn't sought out any fame from them either. In Hartman's analysis written for the Condon Committee, cond I every time I every time I had to write that, every time I have to say it, I'm sorry if it sounds like condom committee. It's the Condon Committee. Words are hard. <laughs> anyway, so in Hartman's analysis written for the Condon Committee, he wrote This is one of the few UFO reports in which all factors investigated, geometric, psychological, and physical appear to be consistent with the assertion that an extraordinary flying object, silvery, metallic, disc-shaped, tens of meters in diameter, and evidently artificial, flew within sight of two witnesses. He cited the photos as evidence for his conclusion, noting that the brightness on the underside of the objects appeared to be lighter than an oil tank, which can also be seen in the photos. The cause of this could be from what is known as atmospheric extinction and scattering, which is the same phenomenon that makes mountains look washed out and blue. Kind of fun. This suggests that the UFO objects are actually further away from the camera than the oil tank is and not smaller size clo up close objects, like a model that you would think to see in a hoax. Uh, okay. 
Hartman didn't entirely write off the idea that the objects could have been a hoax or man-made, though, noting that the object appears beneath a pair of wires, as seen in plates 23 and 24. We may question, therefore, whether it could have been a model suspended from one of the wires. This possibility is strengthened by the observation that the object appears beneath roughly the same point in the two photos, in spite of them having taken from two positions, and concludes, these tests do not rule out the possibility that the object was a small model suspended from a nearby wire by an unresolved thread. Bullshit. Yeah. Absolute bullshit. It's real. I'm choosing to believe it's real. There is no wire. Bullshit. I do, I do like that in this report, he was like, I don't think it's fake, but if it's fake, here's all the reasons why it's fake. You know what I mean? It's like, I do like that too, actually. I play both sides so that I always come out on top. Was a little bit how it was. He also noticed another suspicious detail that remains one of the things that skeptics of the photos fixate on the most. He noticed that the lighting of the photo was consistent with the lighting expected around the time that the sun sets, but wrote that there could be a, a possible discrepancy in view of the fact that the UFO, the telephone pole, possibly the garage, garage at the left, and especially the distant house gables left of the distant barn, are illuminated from the right or east. The house, in particular, appears to have a shadow under its roof that would suggest a daylit photo, and combined with the eastward incidents, one could argue that the photos were taken on a dull, sunlit day at, say, 10 a.m. After Hartman had finished his examination of the photos, he returned them to UPI. He also let the Trents know that he had examined them and returned them to UPI. Shout out to this guy for being like the first person in the story to actually let the Trents know the location of their photos. Thank you, sir. Trents had contacted Philip Bladine, editor of the News Register, which was the newspaper that eventually turned into the Telephone Register, and told them that they had never been paid for their use of the negatives and that they wanted them returned. Bladine informed UPI and they returned the negatives, but for some unknown reason, they were never returned to the Trents from there and they were never informed of their new location by Bladine. All right, every time you say Bladine, and it's just because we've been watching too many, like just too much community, even though we haven't watched it for a while. We just quote the Dean too many times, and it just sounds like Bladine, Dean Dong, Dean Dong. What's the Dean got to do with it? Okay, I'm done. I'm got sorry. To do with it. <laughs> the negatives resurfaced once again in 1975 when they were found in the files of the News Register by a man named Bruce McAbee. Bruce McAbee was an optical physicist for the U.S. Navy and a ufologist. He did his own examination of the photos, and his conclusion was that the photos were authentic and showed a real physical object in the sky. He used densiometric measurements in his investigation, which is similar to the photometric analysis Hartman did in his examination of the photos. Maccabee agreed with Hartman that the brightness on the underside of the objects suggested that they were larger objects further away from the camera rather than smaller objects closer to the camera. He also analyzed the positions of objects in the image and in a photo of the site captured by Hartman in June of 1967. Maccabee argues that the line of sight of the two photos intersected a good distance behind the power lines in both of the photos, which he found to be more evidence that the objects were not small objects dangling from the power lines. He also didn't find any evidence of any thread or strings suspending the UFOs from the power lines. I told you! In response to the skeptics saying, saying that the photos must have been taken in the morning rather than the evening based on the shadows in the photos, he said that the cloud conditions over the town that day could have been responsible for these shadows. 
In the 80s, more skeptics came forward with their thoughts on the photos. Shut up! Get out of here! Two of them, journalists and UFO skeptics Philip J. Class and Robert Schaefer, came forward and said that they thought that the photos and the entire sighting had been a hoax. These guys want a fist fight. They argued that the shadows on the garage on the left-hand side of the photos proved that the photos were taken in the morning. They were of the thought that if the Trents had lied about the time that the pictures had been taken, they might just be lying about the entire thing happening. They also claimed that the Trents had an interest in UFOs before they had their alleged sighting. So? They did their own analysis of the photos, and their findings were that the UFO object was actually small in size, and likely just a model UFO hanging from the power lines above by a string. I'm gonna give you a bop, sir. Right on your nose. They theorized that the fake UFO might be made from a car's side view mirror. The object is very similar in shape to car side mirrors found at the time, especially Fords, where they were used in production for decades. No, that's fucking stupid because Ford was heavily influenced by UFOs. (laughs) (laughs) Henry Ford had a lot of questionable influences, but I don't know if the aliens were upon that list. (laughs) Henry Ford was doing a lot of um, experimental uh, drugs. (laughs) Schaefer sent the results of the skeptics examination to Hartman who actually ended up withdrawing his previous findings that he sent to the Condon committee Hartman really said I play both sides so that I always come up on top no that's actually good science because like once you get new evidence that makes you change your mind or like proves your hypothesis wrong you should update like your stuff you shouldn't be like i'm gonna deny that evidence and i'm just gonna double down on my original belief this man really said i ain't gonna choose either side of the fence i'm gonna sit on it i even know how to sleep on a fence you know what side he chose the he he chose the fence. he slept on that fence with the post in his mouth he chose the truth (laughs) he He wants nothing but cold hard facts bring them back to theranos but we we gotta we gotta record a whole side pot side shows for that The Trents did a follow-up interview about their sighting with the Orgonian in 1997, and it contains some of the single most hilarious dialogue I have ever read in an interview, let alone a UFO interview, and we're here to act it out for you. So Evelyn is describing the night of the sighting to the interviewer, telling them about how the craft didn't make any sounds, but kicked up a lot of wind. Paul, who was losing his hearing at the time, cuts into the interview. Stephen will play the part of Paul, and I'll be Evelyn. I'm Stephen. What are you talking about? No, you're losing your hearing. Oh, I'm losing my hearing. Oh, okay. What are you talking about? I was talking about the wind. After you took a picture of it coming in and then going back out, the wind came down and it had no motor or no smoke or no nothing. Just the wind. Saw there was no motor or sound to it at all. I told you to forget about all that. I know you did. You told me to forget about it. We've been bugged so much. Just, just classic old man bitching. <laughs> I, I, I told you to forget that. Like, that don't matter. You talking about the UFOs again? I told you to forget that. I know I put rat poison beside my cheese in the refrigerator. Don't worry about it. You don't have to bring it up every day, Evelyn. <laughs> you make a mistake one time. You put your so- you put your gloves on your feet one time, and your socks on your hands, and you never hear the end of it. Evelyn Trent passed away in 1997, and Paul Trent passed away the following year in 1998. From a broken heart. 
Probably, honestly. Oh. It sounds like it from how they fought as like an old couple during an <laughs> actual news interview that they were giving. That's us someday, dude. <laughs> if us when we're yeah. 70, we aren't being interviewed by a newspaper arguing over a UFO sighting we had 50 years ago, I don't want it. Yeah, no, that's what it was. They fought from not fighting with each other, from just not, not bickering with each other. That's when you know you got a good relationship when your fights are UFO based. <laughs> UFO encrypted based. Neither one of them confessed to any hoax and remained believers in what they had seen until their deaths. The hype around the possible UFO photos led to the creation of an annual UFO festival held in McMinnville. It's the largest UFO gathering in the Pacific Northwest and the second largest in the country, with only Roswell, New Mexico itself beating it out for the top spot. That actually sounds really fun. If we ever get down to McMinnville, we need to we need to really do that. And I know that Oh, didn't they change it? Yelm used to have a, a UFO festival, but then they like switched towns or whatever, right? Yeah, then it was at the Thurston County Fairgrounds. Right. And I went and it was kind of lame. Oh. Um, but you know what was a good one? The uh, Flying Saucer Party in Chehalis. I think that that's back this year. It had to stop because of COVID, but I think that that's back. And that fun. was so much fun. They had the uh, Chehalis Library open. You could go in and like look at. They had some stuff from the uh, Maury Island incident. I did an episode on that one. Mm-hmm. That's a Washington UFO thing. Yeah. And um, they had like move uh, like old alien movies playing at the theater. They had like the entire thing of like Chehalis. Oh, like that. it was all, and they unveiled like the mural that they had done of the Kenneth Arnold sighting, and it was just really fun. Oh, yeah. But I would love to go check out this one in McMinnville, especially hearing that it's like so big. Oh, absolutely. I need that. a gigantic UFO festival in my life. To this day, the McMinnville photos remain a hot topic of debate in the UFO community, with some diehard believers defending the photos as some of the best UFO evidence ever captured and making even the skeptics admit that if they are a hoax, they are an extremely convincing one. It's real. You know what? I'm going to say I'm a believer, too. It's real. I believe it. It's real. Thank you for listening to another episode of Olympia Oddities. It's real. If you want to support the podcast, you can leave us a five-star review. Tell a friend or follow us on Facebook and and Instagram at Olympia Oddities Podcast. All of those are valid and real ways to support us. It's real. We also have a TikTok at Olympia Oddities that I've been trying to be a little bit more active over there. We're doing some fun stuff. Me learning how to make video content for y'all. It's real. We're always taking submissions for episode ideas to cover and listener stories. So if you want to send in something, you can DM us or email us at OlympiaOddities at gmail.com. We also have a buy me a coffee set up to help us fundraise for Pacific Northwest True Crime Fest, where we will be performing a live episode in October. And we're really excited for that. Stoked to meet all you guys. Stoked to meet all our fellow little Pacific Northwest creepy people podcasters out there and support them. We're going to have some fun stuff for our booths. We've curated some fun little like things that we think kind of fit the vibe of our podcast. Uh, you know, it's going to be real. It's, go- it's going to be real. It's real. I'm Trista, and you can find my personal Instagram at Saloon Ghost. And I'm really the real Steven Ramirez, really, all the time, really. And until next time, friends, keep it real.